May I invite your attention to 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings chapter 21 at verse 1. You follow as I read the entirety of the chapter. 1 Kings 21. Here we go. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, give me your vineyard and that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near next to my house and for it I will give you a vineyard better than it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its worth in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. So Ahab went into his house, sullen and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned his, or turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? He said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Then Jezebel, his wife, said to him, now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat food, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. She wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with high honor among the people, and seat two men, scoundrels, before him to bear witness against him, saying, You have blasphemed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him. That he may die. So the men of the city, the elders and nobles who were inhabitants of this of his city, did as Jezebel had said, had had sent to them, as it was written in the letters which she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth with high honor among the people. And two men, scoundrels, came in and sat before him, and the scoundrels witnessed against him, against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, "Naboth has blasphemed God and the king." Then they took him outside the city and stoned him with stones. So that he died. Then they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And it came to pass. When Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. So it was when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab got up and went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. So Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he said, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity and will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. 
I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and shall, and, the, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The, the dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. There was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. And he behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So it was when Ahab heard these words, those words that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me. Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, that endures forever. The story I've just read you about Naboth's vineyard is the basis for one of the most famous sermons that have that has ever been preached, ever. It was first preached in South Carolina, and then it was preached in the city of Memphis, Tennessee, scores of times. It was preached by the then pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church. His name was Dr. R.G. Lee. The title of the sermon was Payday Someday. The sermon was preached more than 1,000 times around the, around the country and around the world. It was uh, made into tapes, brochures, books. Uh, there were albums that were used to record that sermon and reproduce it. In fact, when I was in seminary, this is in um, the low 70s, when I was in seminary, we, we in, a, in a homiletics class, which is, is the class where they try to teach you how to preach, a class I failed, but um, in that homiletics class, we studied that sermon. We listened to it on a, do you remember these things? Those, you youngsters, well, there's 78 LP records. We listened to that sermon on a, on a record and tried to figure out uh, how to do better ourselves. Now, guys, um, what is it about... This story, not the sermon, not the sermon so much. What is it about this sermon that made it so famous? What is it about this story that made the sermon so famous, so memorable? You know, apart from the excellence in delivery, and it was preached well. Apart from that, what is it about this story that, that strikes a chord in all of us, that, that touches a nerve? What is it about this story that, that raises our blood pressure? I want to suggest there's three things. There's three things in this, this story, not the sermon, but this story that, um, that has made this sermon find its way into the hearts of so many and did for so long. Here's the first item. The sermon has to do with um, with our cosmic struggle 
against injustice and our longing for justice. There's a part in the sermon, if you've ever heard it, I mean, it, it uh, I still remember portions of it. Uh, I used to have the tape. I don't know what I do. I, I may still have it, but I think I do. But uh, there's a there's a part in the sermon where R.G. Lee, and he does this several times. By the way, he preached in a white suit. Um, on the front of the album, never will forget, uh, on the front of the album was a picture of R.G. Lee in a white suit. And in, and in one section, in one part of the sermon, <clears throat> he, he screams. I, I won't scream, but I, I, he, um, he yells. He yells this. Where is God? He says it over and over again. Ahab, the king of Israel, is the most overtly idolatrous king in the history of Israel. And Naboth got in his way. Naboth refuses to sell a vineyard. And he explains the reason that he will not sell it. It's because it's a family inheritance. He refuses to sell this plot of land based on Levitical regulations. His, his opposition to sell, you notice he, he starts off by saying, the Lord forbid. His, his offense, his opposition to sell this, this, this piece of property was based on, on a regulation. It was, it was a theological problem that he had. It was a, it was a covenantal resistance to, to this offer from Ahab. And so Ahab, having been denied, goes back to his house, he pouts, is sullen, won't eat any food, and Jezebel gets involved. Jezebel said, what's the problem here? I'll get that for you. And so she hatches a plot. She arranges for uh, some false accusations from two scoundrels in the, in the midst of a kangaroo court. And... Um, The result of it all is that an innocent man is murdered. Where is God? Why wouldn't he do something? You know, folks, I think we've all got our stories about um, injustice. Did I ever tell you mine? Did I ever tell you the story about Sweetie Dawkins? Ever tell you that story? The young family moved to um, Shelby County, moved to Memphis in uh, late February of 1985. I started work at Central Church on uh, the first of March of 1985, and, and in less than a month, it was it was I think it was April 1 of 1985. We had some friends up from Florida to visit us, and so we had taken them downtown to supper. We were I was driving my in-laws' car. And we had gone downtown to the butcher block or butcher shop, whatever that thing is, and uh, we had taken the, the, the friends of ours, the Benzics, out to supper. And so after supper, we were driving around the city. I was just showing them some sights of the city. And so I just turned east off of Riverside Drive onto Beale Street. We were coming up that little hill uh, right there at Front Street, and there's a stoplight right there. You know, the Orpheum is right over here. And I was going through that, that stoplight, and, and coming from the north... A car driven by Sweetie Dawkins 
comes over that crest, runs the red light, hits us on the driver's side. And that night, I ended up in surgery. They had to rebuild this whole orbit around my eye. Yes, ladies, I have had plastic surgery. And I probably need a little more. (laughs) But um, they had to put wires underneath this eye and put it back together. When our, when our day in court finally arrived, Sweetie Dawkins stood before the judge and lied. <laughs> um, there were four of us in the car. We all knew he lied. But in the court system of the day, they call it a swearing match. A swearing match. And, and uh, nobody outside the car had seen the accident. And so Sweetie Dawkins stood before a judge... And he lied. And he got away with it. What's your story? Remember back when you said something like this? You said, um, that's not fair. Or you said, perhaps, where's God? Why doesn't he do something about this? Let me try and answer those questions that you have with another story. This story took place about 100 years ago. It's a true story. It was a a, a story about a missionary who had just returned home back to the United States from having served the Lord in China for 35 years. He arrived at the train station in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, on a cold, wintry, snowy night. And um, the train station, or at least the platform on the train station, was still littered with with confetti and streamers from a from a celebration that had taken place the day before. The day before he had arrived home, the president of the United States, Teddy Roosevelt had come back home as uh, triumphantly after an African safari where he had hunted big game. And, and his face and his picture was splashed all on the front page of the newspapers standing next to this big rhino that he had shot. But on this night, this missionary, he stood alone awaiting someone to come pick him up. And he wondered out loud, Lord, I've spent 35 years serving you in China. And there's not one soul here to welcome me home. The president goes off and kills large animals. And a crowd turns out to welcome him. Why is there no one here to welcome me home? The missionary said that it was as if God spoke to the base of his soul and said, My son, you aren't home yet. Do you get that, ladies and gentlemen? Do you get what I'm trying to say? Do you understand the point that I'm trying to make? Guys, this ain't home for us. We're pilgrims. We're passing through. We're on our way to a destination. And to expect justice in a world that has been riddled with sin 
is a naive expectation. It's a misguided expectation on our parts. Guys, I, I hope you get justice in your legal matters. You, you may just get justice. I hope you do. But don't be surprised if you don't. Because we're not home yet. Guys, as far as our longing for justice goes, which is one of the reasons I think this sermon sticks with us, or this story sticks with us. As far as that longing for justice, let me, let me say three quick things. First of all, do you know what that longing inside you proves? You know what that proves? It proves the existence of God. You do know that, don't you? Because if justice is not done here and there's no God, then justice will not be done anywhere. That which you feel inside of you, longing for justice, it's because you're made in the image of God. Because there's a God who exists. Here's the second thing. My dear friend, don't ever pray for justice. You can pray for mercy, but don't ever pray for justice. You might get it. Pray for mercy, not justice. Then thirdly, in terms of this story, where is God? Oh, he's here, all right. He shows up in verse 17 when he comes to Elijah and says, I want you to go and I want you to meet Ahab. Ahab and Jezebel have no idea that there is a God from whom no secrets are hid. And so Elijah pronounces the most severe, the most far-reaching prophecy in his ministry, I think. He says to Ahab, your dynasty is doomed to extinction, and God will use wild dogs as his executioners. It was justice that took decades to fulfill. But it was a justice that they could not escape. You know, in that sense, this story reminded me of the David and Bathsheba event. There's a, there's a, there's a David and Bathsheba feel in this story. Because Ahab is like David. Ahab took something that was his neighbor's and didn't belong to him, like David did. And that thing that he took from his neighbor was very precious to his neighbor, like, like David did. Um, then Ahab went out and killed or had his neighbor killed like David did. And then, like in the instance of David, God raises up Elijah as he wrote, as he raised up Nathan to break the case wide open. Guys, Nathan's blood or Naboth's blood is not going to be soaked into the ground and forgotten. There's a verdict and the verdict is guilty. Justice will be done, but not now. Do you believe that? I can't make you believe that, but I can tell you that that is the constant claim of this book and specifically the claim of this story. You remember, remember back in 1999, in February of, I think it was February of 1999, it was the day after President Bill Clinton had been acquitted of perjury and obstruction of justice. Crimes that many of us believe he should have been convicted of. That is, had the senators 
voted on the basis of the evidence instead of the basis of uh, opinion polls, he would have been convicted. But he wasn't. And the day after he was convicted, convicted or acquitted, the, um, the headlines in the newspaper said, Clinton acquitted. And then on the editorial page, there was an article, and it was, the article was entitled, The Senate, colon, A Profile in Cowardice. And then there was a, there was a, there was an editorial cartoon attached to the story. And it was a picture of Lady Justice getting trampled on by the senators as they ran. Gang, here, you can expect justice to get trampled on. But not forever. The second thing that I think is so, um, a second thing in this story that just resonates, I think, that makes, that contributed to the overall impact of R.G. Lee's sermon has to do with the pain of an awakened conscience. It, it's another moving part of this story when, when, when Elijah finally confronts Ahab. And then Ahab's response in verse 20, I wish you could hear Dr. Lee do it. I wish I could do it like he did it. Um, and he said it about three times. I'll only say it once, but I'm going to try to say it like he said it. He said, um, he's quoting, he's quoting from Ahab and, and he says, hast thou found me? Oh, my enemy. That's, that's what happens to an awakened conscience, ladies and gentlemen. The one who is the bringer of the truth is the one who becomes the enemy. And, and, and Elijah is not Ahab's enemy. Jezebel is his enemy. In fact, Elijah is his best friend. He just doesn't know it. You know, guys, whenever I talk about an awakened conscience, I always think of two things. One of them is found in the book of Genesis in chapter 40. Don't, don't turn, but it's in chapter 42. You remember, you remember um, in the story of Joseph, you remember that story where the brothers sell their brother into slavery and he goes down to Egypt and he is in prison and, and then he arises to the right hand of Pharaoh because there's, a, there's seven years of plenty and seven years of, um, of famine. You remember that story? Well, and finally the, the famine reaches his brothers up in Canaan and so they look at each other and say, listen, we better go down there and get us some food from Egypt. And so they go down to Egypt to buy food. And so they come before Joseph, and Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And so Joseph begins to mess with them and say, okay, I don't believe you. I think you're here to spy out the land. And, and um, um, you're, 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 if, if this story can't be verified, uh, you know, you're going to die. And um, here's what I want you to do, Joseph says, through a, a translator. He says, uh, I want you to go back home. I want you to get the one brother that you left there and bring it back so that you can verify your story. Now that's what happened. Listen to their response. Then they said one to another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when we when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them and saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against this boy, and you would not listen? 
Ladies and gentlemen, that event took place 20 years earlier. And the least bit of difficulty happens into their life. And all of a sudden they say, do you remember what we did? Do you know that crime that we committed? Because their conscience has sprung into action. Because, ladies and gentlemen, so often it's that way that God uses to to show us our sin. It's the one voice that we can't ignore. Ahab's conscience lay dormant until it's awakened by the voice of God. In this instance, it was a prophet. But for us, it's often conscience. The other thing that I always like to, I mean, I've said this before, the thing that that I think is a piece of genius is Edgar Allan Poe's short story, The Case of the Telltale Heart. Well, you need to read that. It's fascinating. You you know, you remember it. Uh, the, 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 The main character hates this old man that lives close to him. And he says about this old man that this old man looks at him with a vulture's eye. (laughs) <laughs> an old man looks at this guy with a vulture's eye. So he decides, I'm going to kill him. So he kills him. And so to hide the body, he dismembers the body, and he and he uh, hides it under the floorboards of, of his apartment. And then, then this man's conscience springs into action, and it drives him mad because he hallucinates thinking that he hears the beating of the dead man's heart underneath the floorboard. And the detectives come over and the inspectors come over and and the man is driven mad because all he can hear is the thump, thump, thump of the heart that he thinks is still beating under the floorboards. It's just the operation of an awakened conscience, the one the one voice, the one, the one thing that you can't run from. It's the battle that you will never win. Now guys, you've heard me say this numerous times before. I said it, I said it communion four times out of ten. I quote J.C. Ryle who said, the only thing that can quiet a guilty conscience is the blood of Jesus that's sprinkled on it. By the way, I'd say this too. The operation of your conscience is another evidence of the existence of God. Because that law of God is inscribed on your heart. The very thing, ladies and gentlemen, that Ted Kennedy got all over Clarence Hill about when he was trying to be approved for the the Supreme Court. It's called natural law. And that natural law is inscribed on the tablets of your heart. And when we violate it, our conscience is aroused. That's the second thing I think about this story that contributes to making this sermon so memorable. The third thing, and I'm done. In the midst of this story about injustice, an aching awakened conscience and the whole idea of wild dogs and all that business there is a real strand a real thread of hope woven into this story L- let me try to show it to you 
First of all, ladies and gentlemen, did you notice verses 25 and 26? Did you notice what was said there? Actually, um, I don't know of anything else quite like it in the whole of the Bible. Um, and, and in many of your translations, you're going to find that it's in parenthesis. It's a description of, um, of Ahab. And they're t- they're, it talks about him as being the most wicked king that ever lived and on and on. It's just, um, but there was no one like Ahab. He sold himself in the, and, and most of the translations that you have will, will, will have that in parenthesis. Now, guys, in the Hebrew language, there's no such thing as a parenthesis. I don't know why they stuck it in there. It's not in this New King James, but in most of your translations, you're going to find a parenthesis in there. But parenthesis or no parenthesis, the content is stunning. How would you like to have this said about you? By anybody, much less God. Um, there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickednesses in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel's wife, and he behaved very abominably in following his idols, etc., etc. And, and interestingly, the, the sin that is used to illustrate how wicked he was is not Naboth. Or what he did to Naboth. The sin that is mentioned is his idolatry. A, a, a sin that most sophisticated Americans doesn't even believe, they, they don't even believe it exists. That is idolatry. And, and, and in America, if, if you do believe in idolatry at all, then, um, then those who have interpreted the First Amendment for us have, have quieted our consciences. Because they tell us that it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make one particle of difference which God you, you, you worship. You can worship Buddha. You can worship Allah. You can worship Jesus. It doesn't matter. Because we're all just hyphenated Americans anyway. We're Christian Americans and we're Muslim Americans and we're atheist Americans. But we're all Americans. Ladies and gentlemen, may I be the first to inform you. The Bible doesn't speak about, speak about idolatry in such a red, white, and blue way. The Bible doesn't say that idolatry is morally neutral or morally indifferent. Let me tell you what it says about it. It says, um, listen to this. Um, their idols are silver and gold. Their work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not uh, they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. They have noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. They have feet, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. Guys, do you know what you just heard out of Psalm 115? You've heard that idolaters are as dumb and as blind and as deaf and as impotent as the gods they worship. The point I'm making is simply that Ahab was one wicked dude. But Jimmy, where where is the hope in that? Stay with me. Folks, Naboth is hardly the first or the last faithful, innocent man that got victimized by a plot. There's one in the New Testament. His name is Jesus. And just like Naboth, his blood was spilled outside the city. My friends, the Christian gospel is a story of a man whose enemies conspired against him. A man falsely accused by scoundrels in a kangaroo court. And a man who was then taken outside the city. 
to endure an unjust execution, spilling his blood, but not needlessly. Spilling his blood for to pay for my sin. Now, again, where's the hope? Here it is, guys. In the most surprising twist in the whole story, do you see what Ahab does? The one that is so guilty gets a reprieve. Verses 27, 28, and 29. You know, guys, gauging somebody else's soul is very tricky business. So you might be asking, where is Ahab today? I don't know. I don't know where he's spending eternity. But I can tell you this much. This text will demonstrate to you again that God delights in repentance. Here, in this story, God responds to the outward signs of humility, as he did in the case of Nineveh with Jonah. Do you remember that? He delays. He doesn't cancel, but he delays the sentence. Ahab's dynasty is still doomed. But where there is Holy Ghost-authored genuine repentance, no matter what your crime Forgiveness is the outcome. What have you done? Hmm? What is your crime? You've been unfaithful? Stole from the company? You addicted to internet porn? I'm sorry. I wish... Those things weren't true. But based on this story, ladies and gentlemen, I can say to you on the authority of God's word that God always receives repentance no matter what you've done. There's the hope. In in one of the most haunting parts of Dr. Lee's sermon... He tells of, a, um, of, of an incident where he was called to a New Orleans hospital to the deathbed of a young man who identified himself only as the chief of the kangaroo court. Do you get that? Dr. Lee is, is called from his home to a hospital in New Orleans by a young man who is dying on a hospital bed, and he will only identify himself with this name, the chief of the kangaroo court. From here, I'd like to quote you a section. It's not a long section. I'd just like to read to you a section and try to do it like R.G. Lee did it. Read you a section of that sermon. In a place by itself, somewhat removed from all other cots and beds, lay a young man about 19 or 20 years of age. Big of frame, though the ravages of disease had brought a slenderness. As kindly as I could, I spoke, saying, Hello. How do you do? He answered in a voice that was a, Discourteous and furious snarl, more like the voice of a mad wolf than the voice of a rational man. Is there something I can do for you? I asked as kindly as I could speak. 
No, nothing, nothing, nothing at all. Unless you can throw my body to the buzzards when I'm dead, if the buzzards will have it. He said with a half a shout and with a sort of fierce resentment that made me wonder why he had ever sent for me. And then his voice lost some of the snarl and he he spoke again. I send for you, sir, because I want you to tell these young fellows something. These young fellows hear something for me. I sent for you because I know you go up and down the land and talk to many young people. And I want you to tell them and tell them every chance you get that the devil pays only in counterfeit money. Oh, I wish I could tell all men and women and all boys and girls everywhere to believe the truth. That Satan always pays in counterfeit money. That all his pearls are paste pearls. That the nectar he offers is poisoned through and through. Oh, that men would learn the truth and be warned by the truth. That if they eat the devil's corn, he will choke them with the cob. I stayed with this young man nearly two hours. Occasionally he spoke. There was a desperate earnestness in the young man's voice as he looked at me with wild eyes where terror was enthroned. I felt his hand clutch at mine as a drowning man would grab for a rope. I held his hand. I heard the raucous gurgle in his throat. Then he became quiet, like a forest when the cyclone is long gone. He was dead. The devil had paid this young man off in counterfeit money. At the end of the sermon, not the end of this story, but at the end of his sermon, Ahab and Jezebel are dead. The the sentence that was thundered by Elijah was completely fulfilled. And then R.G. Lee closes his sermon by saying this. Payday someday. God said it and it was done. Yes, and from this we learn the power and certainty of God in carrying out his own retributive providence that men might know that his justice slumbereth not. Even though the mill of God grinds slowly, it grinds to powder. And the only way I know for any man or woman on earth to escape the sinner's payday on earth and the sinner's hell beyond, making sure of the Christian's payday on earth and the Christian's heaven beyond, the Christian's payday is through Christ Jesus who took the sinner's place upon the cross, becoming for sinners all that God must judge so that sinners through faith in Christ Jesus might become all that God cannot judge. see it now? Do you see the hope now? Do you see it there, ladies and gentlemen? It's a story of consummate hope for whatever crime. There has been blood that has been spilled. The blood of an innocent man. a payment 
Run to him. Flee to Christ. Our Father, I do pray that you will use um, this story to remind us of uh, the great hope that is ours in Christ, but also reminding us about how you operate through a conscience, how you how you will ultimately deal with injustice. But Lord, those are things that that can wait. They can wait until we discover there is a fountain that's filled with blood that has been drawn from Emmanuel's veins and those who plunge beneath that flood lose all of their guilty stains. Lord, make that truth burn in the breasts of those who are here without that Savior today. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.